This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I am so excited to have with us today Dr. Frank Garidi, Associate Professor of History and African-American and African Diaspora Studies at Columbia University. He is the author of Forging Diaspora, Afro-Cubans and African-Americans in a World of Empire and Jim Crow, and co-editor of the Beyond El Barrio Everyday Life in Latino Latina America. He is also the co-host of Say It Ain't Contagious, it's a baseball and politics podcast. It's new. You should check it out. And you can find him on Twitter at F That's G-U-R-I-D-Y. Most importantly for our topic of conversation today, he is the author of the brand new from University of Texas Press, The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics. Um, he likes tennis and he's one of my favorite people on the planet. So we are so thrilled to have you here, Frank. Thanks for coming again. I am thrilled to be here. And as I've said before, and I will say again, I've long been an admirer of your work and the work of Burn It All Down, which is a truly extraordinary um, intervention in sports journalism and commentary. So just to start with the basic, the book, The Sports Revolution, what do you mean by that? What do I mean by the sports revolution? You know, in the United States, uh, there are these moments when uh, we see the expansion of, of sports in our society. The 1920s, for example, is a moment when we're seeing sports, you know, become really popular, college football, Major League Baseball. I'm zeroing in on another moment uh, in which we're seeing the exploding popularity uh, of, of sports, uh, and that is the 1960s and 70s, really 1960s until the early 1980s in which we're seeing in the United States an explosion of the sports industry. We are seeing new professional franchises. We're seeing uh, new stadiums built uh, across the country, around 50 at least, uh, from the 1960s until the late 1980s. We're seeing television become a major factor in the ways in which United States uh, citizens and other folks who live here and other people around the world are consuming television, right? Um, so this is a moment when sports, as we understand it now, as this gigantic industry really takes off in the 1960s and 70s. And it's also the moment, right, the 60s and 70s, when the civil rights and other freedom struggles, including the second wave feminist struggles, are happening at that time, when they're achieving arguably their most significant games, uh, politically, but also socially and culturally, right? So you've got this major industry emerging around sports, uh, sports media, professional sports, collegiate sports, happening at the same time that marginalized peoples are, are fighting for and winning uh, uh, unprecedented political, social, and cultural space in the United States. And so really the book is really trying to bring those two elements together, 
uh, to understand that you really can't have one without the other. Uh, it, that sports plays a gigantic role in our understanding of American citizenship in this period, and that uh, the and that the civil rights struggle has an enormous impact on uh, how we understand sports and how we've understood it uh, to this day. And sticking with that, then, so one of the parts that. I found really moving in the book um, comes somewhere towards the beginning. And you say, it's tempting to view the history of racial integration of college football, and I think you would say professional sports as well, as an historical inevitability, a natural outcome of the great struggles of civil rights movements of the 1960s, when the arc of history finally seemed to be leaning towards justice for black people. And yet such thinking minimizes the importance of the actual decisions made by historical actors to change what many thought to be the natural order of things. And so I thought it was so interesting looking back and looking through this book at the ways in which you're trying to maybe preserve and interrogate a history that it would be really easy to say, hey, of course, Jackie Robinson and now today. And, you know, so... Could you highlight for some of our listeners like some of those things that you think we should know about the massive resistance? Massive resistance and also the struggles to to create opportunities for for black athletes and other uh, athletes from marginalized backgrounds. You know, I part of the reason why I wanted to revisit this era, I think it's really important for us now because we 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 are sort of often saying with good reason that the current um, dynamic of white supremacy and exclusion, you know, dates from the earliest moments when this country was founded and conquered uh, um, uh, from the conquest and colonization of indigenous peoples. But as a historian who's been trained in social movements, who understands that, uh, you know, that there's continuity and change over time, you know, this 60s and 70s moment is one of those moments when when there is a major break in the the historic hierarchies that had guided sports, particularly racial racial hierarchies. So in the case of college football in the South, right, uh, college football had been, um, you know, heavily racially segregated like everything in the South, right? In the 1960s, the Southwest Conference, which was a somewhat predecessor to today's Big 12, was predominantly white, of course, and it remained so until uh, the mid-1960s when two programs, Southern Methodist University and the University of Houston, decided to recruit an, um, their first black scholarship athletes. In the case of SMU, it was Jerry Levias, the talented kick returner and receiver and runner from Beaumont, Texas. And in the case of Houston, it was uh, Warren McVeigh, McVeigh, the running back from San Antonio. So I'm zeroing in on that moment because I want us to understand that so-called desegregation or integration happens because of decisions that people made, because that head coach of SMU, Hayden Fry, decided right to sign Jerry Levias, uh, and 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 you know, with in his own way, supported Levias through a very very difficult, challenging, traumatic experience of becoming the first black player to play in the Southwest Conference. Right, so integration doesn't just happen; it happens because people make decisions, and it doesn't just happen when the black athlete or the woman athlete uh, shows up or the or the brown athlete shows up on the athletic roster. It happens because people are still struggling after the initial moment of integration. Right, so the chapter that looks at the integration of college football in Texas. Right, really takes the story deep into the 1970s uh, when other schools, uh, you know, decide that they're going to recruit black athletes uh, it, 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 when they previously had not. 
And really, I'm really interested in understanding why was that the case? Why is that all of a sudden, finally, right? Uh, you know, kicking and screaming, but nonetheless, the University of Texas eventually uh, signs a black athlete when they sign uh, Julius Whittier in 1969. Uh, why is it that SMU and the University of Houston, you know, do it first before the other schools uh, in the Southwest Conference, right? And they do it because they want to win, which is something that coaches say all the time. Like they don't, they're, they're colorblind. They don't, they, it's all about wins and losses. And, and that's absolutely true. Uh, but it's also because there are movements forcing them or at least compelling them uh, to, to make these decisions that, that broke with a historical pattern, right? So I'm really interested in that moment of rupture, right? As we would say as historians, to sort of understand, you know, why it happens and then understand the limits of that transformation. You know, I think this book, in a lot of ways, it really asks readers to interrogate the terms of inclusion, right? Why is it that certain populations become included in a institution, or in this case, in, in the sports world, when they had not been before? What were the gains as a result of that inclusion? And what were the limits? And the real limits in this case was certainly as black athletes and other marginalized athletes, including women athletes, and I'm separating them here because in the sports world, they're thought of that way separately. Uh, you know, they have been excluded from certain athletic space that were reserved for white men. Uh, and why is that the case? Why do they become part of the scene? And, and who ultimately benefits from that arrangement? And, and while certain you know, very talented athletes benefit, you know, and they benefit in terms of salaries, in terms of inducements if they're collegiate athletes, uh, the primary beneficiaries are the growing white management class that makes the decisions and controls and orchestrates this dynamic. And so we're talking about these people operating in a real particular time and place. So throughout the book, you're linking it with the emergence of the Sun Belt economically, um, also in the political imaginary and the, the power of Texas, not only Texas, it goes to Oklahoma, we go to Arizona, right? So, but the Sun Belt as a, as a powerhouse economically and politically. And so is it just everything's bigger in Texas? I mean, can you talk about, you know, why Texas is such a compelling case beyond the obvious, you know, it's, it's big? <laughs> yes. Yes, it's big uh, and it's impactful. Well, you cannot understand modern American sporting culture, the modern American sport industry, without understanding the impact of Texans, right? Texas-based entrepreneurs, sports entrepreneurs, and Texas-based athletes. The National Football League, what is the National Football League today, it becomes that because of the efforts of uh, Lamar Hunt and K.S. Uh, Bud Adams, both sons of uh, oil barons, and this is a big part of the story, that much of this gets financed by oil money, um, and also Clint Murkison, another son of another oil baron, right, uh, who uh, essentially forced themselves on the National Football League. Adams and Hunt found the American Football League, eight franchises uh, that uh, basically challenged the supremacy of the NFL. They do it successfully. Clint Murkison uh, forms the Dallas Cowboys in 1960, the same year that Hunt and Adams are creating the American Football League. It is uh, Clint Murkison's uh, president, Tex Schramm, along with Lamar Hunt, who orchestrate the merger of the two leagues after the AFL successfully challenges the NFL's um, uh, supremacy of, of professional football. So if you're going to understand the, the, the emergence of modern NFL, Texas uh, entrepreneurs are extremely important. If you're going to understand uh, the way in which we understand stadiums today, you have to understand the impact of the Houston Astrodome, the first indoor stadium built in this country, the first stadium, uh, uh, which is something I highlight, that has luxury boxes, which is designed to cater to the affluent classes, 
And the Astrodome is interesting because they actually could cater to a cross-class um, constituency, but it's the first stadium that has artificial turf, the first stadium that has luxury boxes. It is a temple in a lot of ways, uh, uh, a tribute to the local energy oil uh, uh, elite in Texas, right? So Texas-based entrepreneurs have a gigantic impact on not just the, the expansion of professional sports, but also the popularity of college football. So much of that oil money is flooding into these athletic programs, and, and that money is used to recruit uh, a new um, uh, emerging class of athletic laborers, black athletes, who are becoming available to these white schools in the era of segregation, right? And, you know, central to the story, of course, is the impact of the talents and the skills of the athletic laborers from Texas, right? So many legends in football, baseball, basketball, and tennis are from Texas that have a huge impact on the popularity of the sport. This is not just a story of far-sighted uh, entrepreneurs and businessmen. This is really the, the story of an alliance of capital and labor to some degree, right? Of athletic laborers who are emerging uh, in the 1960s uh, out of the shadows of Jim Crow segregation, certainly black athletes, uh, teaming with uh, sports businessmen and coaches who understand that if they're going to become successful, they need their talent to win. They need their talent to 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 make their cities uh, uh, um, uh, viable and also identifiable in the Sun Belt. And this is certainly the case with Houston and Dallas, and to a lesser extent, Austin and San Antonio. Right. So, you know, so Texas's case is interesting because it has this significant impact on the way uh, professional sports and collegiate sports is understood and the industry operates. Even, even to the level of sports media. A lot of people I mentioned in this book are, are prominent sports media people from Danny Don Meredith to uh, Vern Luckquist to Phyllis George, who's the first, one of the first women to become part of a sport network um, uh, television um, cast, um, the former Miss America, who has an interesting role in this story. And so, you know, that's why Texas becomes important. Obviously, the South in general and the Sun Belt becomes important, really, as, we, as the sport industry becomes nationalized. But I'm arguing that Texas's impact is significant because really they're the first ones also to desegregate. You know, before New Orleans uh, and Atlanta, right? It is the Texas cities that, is, that the Texas cities that des desegregate first, because again, the sportsmen understand that they need black laborers and black citizens to support their efforts to uh, put their cities on the map through sports. So there's the argument about the talent and the winning. Um, you you know you show in a lot of places the way in which um, racism actually trumps the desire to win. <laughs> we, you know, we know the Boston Red Sox. Um, it, so, but you've got this other argument that I wanted to ask you about and that I think is important, which is always going back to kind of the contradictions of the influx of capital that's happening. So, you know, you've got the abandonment of, and I'm quoting here on page 84, the abandonment of Jim Crow college football in Texas occurred in part because of the massive influx of capital into the realm of intercollegiate athletics. And that certainly seems, you know, so you read Sports Revolution and you know, to my mind, there's many revolutions going on that sort of like the industrial revolution of the sports complex. Um, <laughs> but so, you know, could you talk a little bit about that, writing about that and thinking through that and how that seems difficult and right? Yeah, you know, I, I, I had a, a lot of ambitions for this book. Uh, and one of them is to at least get the reader to appreciate that the story of integration the story of inclusion, the story that leads us to believe that sports is an equal playing field because of the prominence of black athletes, athletes of color, women athletes, is not just a moral story. 
right? It's not just a cultural story. You have to locate it in the economic and political transformations of that time. Certainly, we know that in the case of Jackie Robinson's um, uh, becoming the first uh, black player to play in the major leagues uh, after the Second World War, right? That part of what's going on there is that the Brooklyn Dodgers are looking for talent. Branch Rickey is looking for talent, right? And he sees the talent, right, in the Negro Leagues. And he decides that he's going to start the process by which the Negro Leagues become a talent supplier to Major League Baseball, right? And that's an economic calculus as much as it is a, a moral one, as, as others have, have highlighted. We see a similar dynamic going on in, in Texas in the and other parts of the country of, of the South eventually in the 1960s, right? Uh, you know, the, a big part of the Texas story, of course, those who know this well, is the energy economy. The oil economy uh, makes so much of... Uh, modern Texas, what it becomes to this day, right? And it's not by accident that so many of these guys who want to buy franchises, right, are oilmen in one way, shape, or form, right? Uh, so that's certainly the case uh, with professional sports uh, franchises in Texas, right? The, particularly the NFL, but also the, those who come together around the Houston Sports Association, the, the group that founds the Houston Colt 45s, which eventually becomes the Houston Astros, and also all these boosters who are really loyal to their alumni, to their, to their universities, right? I mean, this, is, this comes through very clearly in the great uh, 30 for 30 documentary on, uh, it's called Pony, Pony Excess. It's on the SMU football scandal of the 1980s. And one of the stories that I, saw, that I see in that film that I see in my evidence uh, as well is just the prominence of, 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 of oral men pumping money into their alma maters because they want their schools to win. Right. Uh, and, and they don't care if the coaches, you know, recruit black athletes. Right. Now, now some programs are more far-sighted on that front than others. The University of Texas is one of the last schools to integrate in the Southwest Conference. Right. Whereas other schools go first. Um, and the University of Texas actually pays for that because they wind up slipping behind and, and they're not as competitive in the 1980s. Uh, as a result of their recalcitrance on uh, segregation, on integration. Uh, but you can't understand that dynamic without understanding oil money. You can't understand the, the birth of the Women's Professional Tennis Tour in 1970 without understanding the entanglements that uh, the tennis players have with Philip Morris tobacco money, right? Uh, which finances the, the, the creation of the Virginia Slims, floor, Virginia Slims Tour in Houston in 1970. So I wanted that to be part of the story, right? Uh, and you can't understand why the sports revolution peters out without understanding the collapse of the oil economy in Texas in the 1980s, which has a gigantic impact on, on sports ownership in, in Texas and on the decline of a lot of these teams that were really flourishing earlier as well, right? So oil, energy, uh, you know, the financing of, of, uh, from, from businesses that profit from toxic commodities <laughs> ironically, are, are very much part of this story. They are. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> There's another revolution going on um, that you call in this chapter sexual revolution on the sidelines. Um, tell us about that. Sexual revolutions on the sidelines. When I first decided to write this book, it, one of the first chapters I started to envision was a chapter on cheerleading and a chapter on the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. Part of that is because... Um, I wanted to make sure this is a book that, you know, as best as I could, uh, was really uh, one that was attentive to women's experiences. It is a men's experience in the world of sport, right? Sport history, sport studies, you know, until very recently uh, is a predominantly masculinized genre. I, I could have written this book very easily about one sport. I could have focused on integration uh, as it related to just men. But I wanted to really widen the analytic frame to talk about, well, where are women in this story? They're certainly in this story on the, on the field of play, particularly after the passage of Title IX in 1972. But they're also on the field uh, as, uh, as dancers and cheerleaders on the sideline, right? Which I see as athletic activity, right? It's very clear that cheerleading 
historically speaking, once it becomes feminized in the mid-20th century, is a, is a space where athletically inclined, perceived attra- attractive women wind up congregating, right? Uh, and it becomes a gigantic part of sporting culture, particularly in Texas, right? At all levels, from the youth all the way up to the professional level. So in, uh, the, the chapter on the, on the sexual revolution on the sidelines is really about the, the, the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders as they emerge in 1972, the same exact year that Title IX has passed, which I don't think that's by accident, um, uh, and their role in popularizing the franchise that is known to this day as America's team, right? Uh, the story of the Cowboys is often a story of far-sighted management, Tex Tram, Ton Landry, uh, legendary football players like Roger Staubach, Tony Dorsett, and then later Troy Aikman and the 90s folks, right? Uh, it's a franchise that's owned by uh, Jerry Jones now, who seizes the Cowboy brand in the late 1980s, and he hasn't let it go since right? Um, when he fires Tom Landry. So that's a story we know well, but the story of the cheerleaders is just a sidebar, right? And I wanted to put that part, uh, make this part of the story. And I see the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders as a parallel labor structure, right? The Cowboys have essentially a gendered labor structure where you have the men, right, in charge of the, uh, and the players on the football side who are playing on the field. And then you have these cheerleaders who are, you know, they're formally incorporated by the Cowboys. Uh, they become enormously popular in the late 1970s, and they are grossly underpaid, right? And they're exploited, right? So um, that's the story that I wind up telling uh, in that chapter. But it's not just a tale of exploitation. I do want the experiences of the cheerleaders themselves to be part of the story. So, you know, it's very clear that uh, many of those cheerleaders, first of all, they weren't all white. There were significant uh, numbers of black and Latinx and even Asian American cheerleaders on that team in the 1970s. Uh, you know, Vontiel Baker and her sister Vanessa are two black cheerleaders who were dancing with the Cowboys for almost 10 years in the 1970s. You know, they, you know, for them, for these women, black women, you know, working class and rural women, you know, dancing for the Cowboys was a form of, of self-expression, right? Uh, and they're willing to put up with the exploitation, the harassment, the toxic masculinity, uh, and, and, and the, the brutal labor regime that, that they were, that they trained under because they got something out of it. They got fame out of it, right? But the Cowboys got a lot of money out of them too, you know? And I think, of course, this resonates with the debates around cheerleading in the NFL today, right? Uh, so the origins of that dynamic of a, exploited, uh, feminized labor force in cheerleading, which we see to this day really originates in that period when cheerleading is becoming professionalized. And you also make the point, I mean, you have a wonderful section, just um, just a teaser for readers on the battle of the sexes. So do do check that out. And we, um, but I do want to say, you know, you also are discussing the ways in which Perhaps the feminist movement um, made their own assumptions about um, these athletes in terms of the cheerleading teams and what they, what the sexual objectification angle was in such a way that it seems like they really weren't included in the feminist movement. Yeah, you know, and some of this I'm drawing from the the great book uh, by Susan Ware, uh, which actually centers Billie Jean King in the story, but it really situates Billie Jean King's ascendance as a feminist icon within the context of the transformations that uh, happened as a result of Title IX, right? Um, And it's clear that when you read many second wave feminists, you know, sports was really not on their agenda, right? It was a very class-based agenda that was concerned with real substantive issues, no doubt, the ERA, expansion of education, employment opportunities. Uh, You know, then you've got, you know, queer uh, feminists entering the the fray and raising all sorts of questions around sexuality. But by and large, in that moment, feminists sort of look down on sports, right? The sports activists are kind of operating in a different sphere, right? And we see this pretty clearly in Ware's book. 
And of course, with the cheerleaders, you know, the cheerleading was seen, understandably so, as this retrograde, you know, practice of sexual objectification of the pre-Title IX era that had to just go away, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders and NFL cheerleaders in particular become a lightning rod for second wave feminists because they are seen as, as, as representing this, this uh, class of, of women that are there just to cater to, uh, to become eye candy for straight men. And to some extent, that's what uh, they're right to some degree. But, but again, if you widen the frame and if you incorporate some of the insights of feminism since second wave, when you think about the, the role of sexual fulfillment and sexual uh, liberation, when you, you know, get beyond the kind of historic white middle class orientation of that era, Right then, you see that. I mean, I'm not arguing that the Chileans were feminists by any means. Uh, they, you know, within the sport context, they certainly were pushing back uh, against certain assumptions of what entertainment should be. If you watch Super Bowl 12 as the sport nerd that I am, uh, so much of what I did in this book was to watch and closely old YouTube videos of old telecasts because that provides enormous, amazing materials, particularly on the cheerleaders. You know, you look at a telecast where the Dallas Cowboys are playing the Denver Broncos at Super Bowl twelve. You know, the, the cameras are on the cheerleaders almost as much as they are on the men on the gridiron, right? By that point, 1978, you know, television executives understood that the cheerleaders helped them make a lot of money. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It also probably provided a bunch of thrills for all the dudes who were who were the directors and, and, and who were the cameramen, for sure. And they were very open about that. Right. But, you know, as far as they were concerned, the Cowboys were about the cheerleaders, too. They weren't just about the great Roger Staubach and Tony Dorsett and Randy White, etc. So, um, you know, that dynamic is important to take into account when we evaluate, you know, uh, feminism right in that period. Right. And, it, and, and I and I, I, I tend to think that, yes, I think sports was a blind spot for them, even though they rightfully were understanding the exploitative, uh, objectifying um, nature of the cheerleading uh, uh, industry as it was uh, emerging in that period. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, 
BetterHelp can help you. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash burn. That's betterhelp.com slash B-U-R-N. You know, moving away from football for a moment, we have the San Antonio Spurs making an appearance. Um, and and in general, in the 1970s, I would say, is really where you kind of start to talk about um, Latinx influences on sports culture in Texas, in the fan, in the in the fan culture. Could you talk a little bit about that? I absolutely could. If I was you, Brenda Elsie, I would have had a chapter on soccer in Texas. <laughs> and I had originally, I originally thought that that'd be the case, but in the end, I, I, I couldn't pull it together. Um, you know, I was committed to telling the story across sports, and you know, but like every book, some things have to fall out. So I, I mean, I talk about Mexican Americans in the opening chapter, so you can understand how Mexican Americans fit into the Jim Crow order. You know, so I have some some sections on on the borderlands and sporting culture and and uh, the ways in which Mexican Americans experience Jim Crow segregation, right? Uh, but I wanted to tell a story of, of Latinx fandom, which is seldom written about, right? And this is also a personal story because uh, my in-laws live in San Antonio, and I have experienced their fandom. Firsthand, and I've experienced the first the, the firsthand fandom of Latinx uh, populations in Texas, and I also wanted to talk about San Antonio because it's often overlooked uh, in sport history. I mean, there really is no really decent book on the San Antonio Spurs, even though they're one of the most successful NBA franchises. Um, there's a great history of the ABA by Terry Pluto, which I leaned on very heavily to look at the ABA period. Right, so the Spurs emerges as an ABA franchise in 1973. Uh, and what makes them distinct is that they are emerging in this renegade basketball league that's trying to challenge, trying to create a revolution in professional basketball, trying to challenge the NBA's uh, uh, monopoly over professional basketball. And they understand that if they're going to do that, they need fans. And if they're, since they're in San Antonio, where the population is at least 50% Latinx, they understand that somehow they need to incorporate Latinos in, into their culture. And they do. Uh, and it's very clear that Latinos have a, 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 a fans in San Antonio have a significant factor in in in, in the Spurs' success uh, culturally in San Antonio. So I spent some time talking about uh, Mexican American fans in that chapter. I look at the baseline bums, which was a longstanding, I think they're still around, uh, 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 club uh, that was uh, affiliated with the Spurs that caused a lot of havoc mm -hmm. in the stands. Sounds fun. It sounded really fun. Yes. 
And in fact, I sat with the baseline bombs in 2014 when I first started doing this book a long time ago. Uh, so, uh, and you know, and, and what's so interesting about that moment is not just their presence in the stands and their rowdiness, but the inability of the mainstream sports media to understand San Antonio. I mean, like I, I found these just you know, horribly racist passages in Sports Illustrated, you know, really denigrating San Antonio uh, and its fans, right? Uh, and, the, you know, and this is the, the New York-based sports media that, you know, that, that looks at San Antonio as this quaint other place uh, that's not American. And yet it is American and it is part of Texas, right? And so, um, you know, they, um, you know, it's not by accident that in 2013, when Sebastián de la Cruz uh, sings the national anthem at the 2013 NBA Finals and receives a lot of hate, um, you know, um, uh, from uh, racists on Twitter and social media, you know, he sings the national anthem, you know, wearing a mariachi garb. And, you know, the franchise and the fans rally to De La Cruz's support because for them, this is normal, right? The Spurs are, you know, uh, they certainly belong to all San Antonians and all their fandom. But Mexican-Americans have a gigantic uh, impact uh, on their on their franchise. So if you travel around San Antonio today, I mean, the Spurs, you know, uh, the Spurs impact and the impact of Latinos on the Spurs is profound and significant. Uh, and it's not just a marketing ploy. This is not something that originates in some Madison Avenue Los Spurs uh, marketing initiative. This is really grassroots sports marketing, sports fandom that emerges in a league that was really fledging and needed their support. And, you know, the Spurs were, were smart enough to realize that they needed that support and they incorporated it in ways that were really smart, I thought. For those of you who aren't historians, forgive me for 30 seconds. Is it a social <laughs> history of culture or is it a cultural <laughs> history of, oh, of social? Man. Or what are we, where are we falling? As where, how would you tag this? How and why do you ask the question as an either or cultural social? I don't. I, I yeah. throw it out as examples um, to give you a sense of where I'm going, which is, mm -hmm. you know, how do you place this for those of us who are doing history? Um, it's a really detailed study. Yes. It, a lot of details. Yes. It, it's it's <laughs> you're, you're talking about actual games. You're yes. talking about actual people's like details of their lives. Where do you, you know, see this in terms of of historians reading this? Yeah. Well, I I I guess the short answer is that this is a this is both a social and cultural history. I was trained, I think, as a social historian uh, by uh, at the University of Michigan. Uh, you know, my advisor was Rebecca Scott, a renowned scholar of uh, slavery and emancipation in Cuba. My first book was on Cuba, uh, uh, black experiences of Cuba as it as it intersected with African Americans. Um, so that legacy of that training is here insofar as you see, yes, details on, on individuals. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I, I want to tell a story of people. People make history happen. Right. It's not just these, you know, uh, depersonalized forces that make things happen. But I also wanted to draw upon the work of cultural historians and performance study scholars, too. You know, part of this because my partner, Deborah Paredes, is a performance study scholar. Uh, and I've read a lot of performance studies. And when it's done right, it really allows us to see how bodies in motion, how performance creates knowledge, creates identifications, right? And that sensibility informs my, my attention to athletic contests. You know, I mean, this is also a book that's pitched for, you know, the general interest reader who likes sports. So yeah, I tell stories of touchdowns and curveballs and backhands and slam dunks. Absolutely. Um, 
One, so that we can appreciate the kind of the power of uh, and the compelling nature of sport practice, right? Uh, and in that sense, it's also a labor history, <laughs> right? Uh, it is about, you know, how plays happen, you know, how coaches come up with their strategies. You know, I've got stuff in there about the Veer offense that uh, that uh, Bill Yeoman uses when he coached the University of Houston Cougars in the 1960s and 70s, right? Uh, not just to, to appeal to the football fans, so that we can understand, particularly those who don't understand sports, that there's an intellectual component to sports practice, sports labor, sports performance, you know? So... So it looks like cultural history in the sense that, yes, I'm talking about, you know, the cultural impact of advertising. I'm talking about the cultural impact of television. I'm talking about, you know, George Gervin's finger roll, right? But not just for, you know, uh, and I spent some time talking about what, how, what, what, what's required to shoot a finger roll. And if you know basketball and if you don't have long fingers, and even if you do, it's a really hard shot to shoot, to, to pull off. Um, so, you know, in that sense, it, it is a blend, I think, of social and cultural history, you know, um, and, I, and, I, and I spend a lot of time, I think academic writing about sports tends to overlook the stuff on the field, the stuff in the television truck, the stuff that happens in the television booth. And I wanted this book, for better or for worse, to, to sort of bring all that in and analyze it closely and not just tell it as a backstory. Oh, you know, uh, George Scurvin scored, you know, 70 points or 63 points and won the scoring title. And now I'm going to go on and talk about how racist the media was, uh, you know, in, in their misunderstanding of the Spurs, which I could have done and that would have been fine. But that, that, that would, that, that's a narrative that doesn't interest me as much. Uh, and I think as an intervention in sport uh, history, I'm pulling on the convention that sports writers have been doing forever, which is to talk about and write about stuff that happens on the field. I mean, you know, uh, Messi is a compelling soccer player because of what he does on the field, right? Uh, on the pitch. Only so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Frankly. So, so that's what informs, I think, the kind of approach to the book. Uh, and I think, you know, in academic terms, I would say that it's a, it's a combination of social and cultural history. Everyone's going to want to know. This has been uh, uh, an unprecedented year of athlete activism. Uh, we saw really important movements uh, towards resisting NCAA's, um, you know, monopoly on uh, unpaid student labor. Um, we've had COVID call into question the very um, moral and ethical um, standards of administrations. We've had an increase in branding. Uh, Michigan State men's basketball team now being presented to you by Rocket Mortgage. I'd like to turn in my <laughs> diploma. Um, we, you know, so, so we've seen, I feel like an amped up year of all the criticisms in this book and that we have all the time as, as scholars of sport. I've seen it just laid bare when you're looking back, it, do you think that's the case if you look back that this is or is this just perpetually the same story? I don't think it's perpetually the same story because uh, I believe that social movements have impacts. You know, uh, you know, it is it is it is really tempting to look at the period I look at the late 1960s. Right. Look at the repression that Tommy Smith and John Carlos faced uh, and compare it to what Callan Kaepernick has faced. Look at the absolute intransigence uh, around amateurism uh, that we see, you know, in the NCAA and say that, yes, this is just another part of that long, unbroken story of corruption and, and exploitation. And, you know, on, in a superficial way, yes, that's true. But, you know, what I, I'd rather see it as, OK, we are revisiting questions that were, were that have been posed before. Right. Uh, and, you know, and the athletic activism uh, 
you know, as part of the broader black freedom struggle, freedom struggles of Mexican origin people, the anti-war movement, second wave feminist struggles, among other struggles, the emergence of uh, gay rights movements, et cetera. You know, we're posing questions, produce some, you know, struggling, produce some results, and then there's a backlash, you know? Uh, and I think that's, that's how I see this moment and compare it to the moment of the, of the late 60s early 70s, when athlete activists, you know, obviously black athletes for sure, uh, you know, at the professional level and the collegiate level, you know, Harry Edwards, Muhammad Ali, all the greats that we always talk about, um, are raising questions and insisting that the white uh, sport establishment respond to their aspirations and desires and demands. Some of those, some of those demands were met to some degree, right? And the, the, and the demands that were met were those in terms of integration, inclusion, right? Um, but uh, because so much of this was hitched on commercialization and, and capital, uh, you know, the primary beneficiaries, as I said earlier, are, are the white men who run the show or who emerge in this period and become hugely successful and, and rich, uh, including those in sport media, right? Um, you know, you can't understand Brent Musburger's career without understanding him, his, his, uh, his emergence in this period, commenting on, on NBA games, you know, that are, that, are, that are played by black laborers, right? So, uh, I mean, his direct... His, his popularity is based on the labor of black athletes in the NBA and to a lesser extent in the NFL, right? That's the legacy of that period, right? It's also significant to understand, again, like the notion of equality then was that we just include people. We don't transform the institutions. And when you look at some of the literature from athlete activists in that period, for example, I mentioned a couple of books in this book, not just Harry Edwards' book, but Gary Shaw, who was a second tier offensive lineman who wrote a book, Meat on the Hoof, which is read as an expose of Daryl Royal's Texas Longhorn College football program. You know, he, he writes very you know, eloquently and painfully about the exploitation he experienced, you know, the brutalization that was involved in making sure Texas players played or did not. But he's raising all kinds of questions about masculinity in that book, right? Toxic masculinity, stuff that we would call toxic masculinity now were being raised 50 years ago, right? So, um, so while the sports revolution produced significant substantive change, there were a bunch of things that were not addressed. Uh, and it also set in motion the hyper-profiteering that we see in collegiate and professional athletics, right? So I talk about Jackie Sherrill's historic co uh, contract that he signs in 1982 uh, with the Texas A&M um, Aggies. And there's a lot of debate about, uh, you know, why this, this football coach is getting paid $1.6 million in 1982. And then, of course, now, you know, college uh, coaches make almost $9 million, uh, million a year and the, and, the, and the salaries keep going. So to some degree, you're seeing this ongoing history of struggle, you know, that's just that's a social movement person to me who who recognize that inclusion and significant change happen and other things have not changed. And what we see now in today's athlete activist movement are a range of questions being raised by a range of actors and not just men. And that's what makes this period significant. Right. I mean, you know this well, you folks talk about this and burn it all down all the time. You know, those questions were not posed and there were not there were no demands on those fronts around trans identity, queerness, you know, in the sports world at that time. Certainly not in not a significant way that becomes uh, taken up by people, at least on the, on the mainstream level. So, yeah, I think that's how I would answer the question. You know, I think we revisit this moment not to tell us what we already know. But we visit the moment to see how were people raising questions back then, right? And how do we tell the story of that period differently? That's not just the story of, of the great men activists and maybe Billie Jean King who produced some change, right? There's a whole host of people that I talk about in this book who are raising critical questions either through activism or through just non-compliant refusal too. So on that and to end, I'd like to one of... Um, my favorite summaries of the book um, is at the end of the introduction. And you say, 
It, meaning this book, is a story of a unique industry that facilitated the creativity and self-expression of talented athletes in the 1960s and 70s, many of whom emerged from the shadows of colonialism, Jim Crow segregation, and patriarchy to provide glimpses of a better Texas and, by extension, a better United States of America. And I put in the margin when I was reading, I put, aww, <laughs> and then I put, who would you put in that category, Frank? So it wasn't even an interview question. It was more like, what what one or two people, you know, when you thought of that and you're writing that sentence and there's so many people in your book, you know, um, do you have an example oh. or two of, of who made, who gave us a glimpse of a better United States of America? Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, so many of the athletes I talk about in this book, you know, um, for okay, sure, so for sure. I'm just asking you for a second yeah. to be, you know, the annoying yeah. question of, of cherry yeah. picking a couple. Yeah. So certainly the women that we associate with the original nine who create the women's professional tennis tour, right? The Billie Jean King story is well known. You know, but one person I talk about is Nancy Ritchie, who's a often overlooked figure. I mean, she's known in tennis circles, and I'm a tennis head, so I knew about her. She's from San Angelo. You know, her, her, she was groomed to be a tennis star, and she was. Uh, and she experienced all the abuse and and um, and the sexism of the uh, of the pre 1968 era when tennis was an amateur and it becomes pro and professionalized in, in the late 60s. Um, um, and so, you know, there's the Richie figure, who's this, you know, white Texas woman who becomes a major player in the creation of the Women's Professional Tennis Tour. Rosie Casals, a Salvadoran American, right, who comes up from the public courts of San Francisco's Golden Gate, Golden Gate Park to become one of the best tennis players of her era, right? Uh, you know, tennis, right? This sort of country cup sport somehow is being intruded upon by this Central American woman, Central American, uh, you know, literally American from the U.S., uh, woman to, you know, change the game, right? Uh, and and create this image of what a Latina looks like in the sports world. We don't often think about her in that way, but I do. Uh, you know, and I and I see this even with the performance of the black athletes. One black quarterback that I talk about in this book is Danny Davis, who's I've, I've never heard of before I started doing research. He's the black quarterback of the of the uh, the Veer offense, uh, University of Houston Cougars. And I talk very closely about him, uh, you know, leading the Cougars to the Southwest Conference Championship and the Cotton Bowl uh, Championship in 1977. And there he is, you know, after his team wins, crying in the locker room, talking about all the losses he experienced as a black man growing up in Texas. You know, the cousins who dies of, 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 um, of uh, I think in his case, I think he died of a disease. I talk about the people he lost to police violence, right? Talk about this as he's crying in the locker room, you know, leading his team in 1977 when the notion of a black quarterback is still novel. You know, creating a story that is really inspiring. And it's just a lot of inspiring stories like that. You know, not just by the great athletes that we know from that period, but these other folks who are emerging from, you know, a state that we often overdetermine as a red state that's conservative, uh, that's just a bastion of white supremacy. But if you pay close attention to the social, the people who emerge from the social movements of that, of that, of that state, you know, the black and Mexican American and, and other marginalized communities, there's some inspiring stories that we see that gives us a glimpse of what we want this country to look like. Thank you so much for being with us today, Frank. And to all of our listeners, I can't recommend highly enough The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics. It is available at University of Texas Press and other places you get your books. Um, so please uh, do yourself a favor and get a copy. Brenda, thanks. Thanks so much for chatting with me about my book. I really appreciate uh, the chance to talk about it with you on Burn It All Down. <laughs>